Welcome back to Takes by the Lake from Cleveland.com. I am your host, Doug LaMaurice. Make sure you're reading me at Cleveland.com. Drop an iTunes review for Takes by the Lake. We got a couple. I asked for a couple last week, and you people delivered. Uh, so now our oldest review is not from February. Um, Takes by the Lake at iTunes. Anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Again, we're getting back in the flow with an every Tuesday podcast. Indians and Browns this week. We've been Browns heavy. Uh, but I want to make sure we deal with the team that is currently fighting for a playoff spot, um, which the Browns will be doing later, but they're not doing yet. Samantha Bunton, who has been on this podcast before, she is a loyal Cleveland fan. She works in sports in New York City. She's really smart. She's really interesting. We talk Indians and Browns with her. And then a new guest, uh, Gage Will from Everyone Hates Cleveland with an analytical look at the Indians, where they are, where they might be next year, uh, the balance of the roster, the Bauer trade, the current starting rotation, lots and lots of good stuff. But before we get to the two of those, uh, those two interviews, just had, I had a Twitter conversation this week with people about uh, the Austin Corbett pick, which is terrible. Um, the fact that Austin Corbett is now a backup center when he was drafted to maybe be a tackle, couldn't be a tackle. To maybe be a guard, couldn't be a guard. Now he's the backup center. That is a terrible pick um, when that's the first pick in the second round of the 2018 NFL draft. And um, the point that somehow we got into a conversation about is like, it, it's not about Corbett because everyone knows that pick stunk. He's not good. And like, are they going to salvage him? Is he going to be the, the center next year because they're going to let J.C. Treader go because they're going to start getting pinched on contracts? Maybe. But but if you're the second pick, if you're the first pick in the second round, the 33rd overall pick in the draft, you should be more than that. So like this is a failure. It's a failure already. Now if they bounce back from it to some degree, okay. But that this is where they are in year two with a guy who practically is a first round pick is a failure. Just like Corey Coleman was a failure. Just like you know other picks in the past have been failures. So my point was basically like we have to, we have to be able to talk about mistakes that John Dorsey makes. Right? Like, is this, is that, is it, are we at the point with the, the, the Dow, the, the Dow of, of Dorsey that like we can't, is it Dow or Tau? I'll take that part out. That like we can't discuss things that went wrong because that was a big miss. And so, um, like, I don't want to get bogged down in it because too often with the Browns, we've been in the business of evaluating general managers instead of, evaluating the team that the general managers built. No one's goal, nobody wins an award. At least fans don't get an award. Nobody has a parade for best general manager, right? Like, wow, what a great collection of trades and draft picks you made. We won the award for best general managers. Like, did you make the playoffs? No, we didn't make the playoffs. But that best general manager trophy sure looks great driving through the middle of Cleveland. That's not how it is. It's about the roster. So I'm not disputing John Dorsey's ability to reshape this roster, because we all know that. But I think we have to be able to talk about it in context. So it's 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 a reminder. I wanted to do a little reminder. I went through all the trades, you know, and it's like, I don't know if we have to revisit every trade. There have been some bad trades. To trade a third-round pick for Tyrod Taylor, the way that worked out, it's like the first pick in the third round for Tyrod Taylor, I got it, and I didn't dispute it at the time. But, like, the way that worked out, like, that was just a wasted pick. Baker, All he did was block Baker Mayfield. You would have been better off with with nobody. Um, and I get, oh, you would have been better off starting Drew Stanton. You know, it's like I get the, the veteran mentor and that kind of thing. But Tyrod Taylor wasn't interested in being that for Baker Mayfield. So at the time, I didn't think it was a big deal. But, like, that's a bad trade in hindsight. And all of this is hindsight. And I'm not saying 
Nobody expects John Doris to be perfect, but like we just have to have a realistic discussion. The McCord, the McCordy trade in hindsight wasn't that good, um, and and you know most of the other ones, a bunch of the little tiny ones, kind of worked out even. Um, some people would say trading Josh Gordon maybe was a miss, but like getting Josh Gordon out of here, the Browns just needed to be done with that, you know. And so trading for Jarvis Landry, good. Trading for Demarius Randall, great. Um, getting rid of Co- Cody Kessler, good. The Duke Johnson trade they just made, good. Um, trading Emmanuel Ogba to get Eric Murphy, uh, get Eric Murray, good. Obviously, the Odell Beckham, Olivier Vernon trade, fantastic, unbelievable. Dumping Carlos Hyde in the middle last year for a fifth round pick, good. So we're not disputing that, but I just want to run through the draft picks really quickly, just to make a point that we just like with everybody, we have to be able to discuss stuff because Austin Corbett is hurting the Browns right now, right? And and two missed picks are hurting the Browns right now. We'll talk about that. So let's look at John Dorsey's first draft. Baker Mayfield, great. Denzel Ward, great. Austin Corbett, bad. Nick Chubb, good. Perhaps you question the positional value, but man, Nick Chubb is really good and everybody loves him. I'm not going to question that. Number 35 pick overall in the second round, good. Chad Thomas in the third round, bad. At least I think so far. I don't I don't know what Chad Thomas is going to be on this team. Um, so don't like it. Antonio Callaway, Either I'm I'm there either way. Fourth round, I get the risk, but but all that is 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 a risk evaluation, not really a talent evaluation. So I don't, I just don't know how much credit you get for being able to take sort of a, an off-field risk sooner than somebody else. So it's not bad, uh, but he's suspended for the first four games, and I've written that's on Dorsey. So that's that's an even, I'd say. Jannard Avery in the fifth round, really good. Damian Ratley in the sixth, I don't know, fine. You don't expect anybody to hit on sixth rounders. Simeon Thomas in the sixth round didn't make the team. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine picks in his first draft. And you would say that like Mayfield, Ward, Chubb, and Avery are good. That's four that are good and maybe Callaway's okay. So that's four out of nine. So that's good, but it's not nine out of nine. That's my only point. This most recent draft, Greedy Williams in the second round, good. Sione Takitaki in the third round, like probably good. I think there are some things in Takitaki's game that people would just say that he needs to be a little more consistent and a little more fundamental. I mean, he 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 makes the flash plays, but like I don't know that we're there all the way yet. Most of these were not all the way there. Sheldrick Sheldrick Redwine in the fourth round, I don't know about that one. I don't from the reports, people who have watched practice, I don't know. I don't know that he's looked like a guy that like you think, well, we'll just plug him in for Demarius Randall for sure in 2020 and we'll be fine. Of course, this is all based on camp of their rookie year, so it's not a final determination, but just talking. Mac Wilson in the fifth round, everybody loves. Austin Seibert in the fifth round seems like a waste because he's no better than Greg Joseph. If they end up keeping him, it's going to be that they're keeping him because he was a fifth round pick, but he certainly hasn't come in here and won the job, so that's a bad pick. Round six, Drew Forbes. Drew Forbes might end up starting. So, like, he might make up for Austin Corbett with Drew Forbes. So, Drew Forbes looks really good. Donnie Lewis in the seventh round is, is kind of whatever. So, that would be Greedy, good. Wilson, good. Forbes, good. Um, I think it's too early to tell on Taki Taki and Red Wine and Cybert's a miss. So, that's three good, one bad. Lewis is a seventh round or whatever. And then two maybe. So, again, that's still good, right? It's all still good. Overall, my point is John Dorsey, good. John Dorsey, not perfect. John Dorsey, not really the point. The roster is the point. And one of the points is he picked a kicker, and the kicking situation is a mess. He picked Austin Corbett as the first pick in the second round, and the right guard situation is a mess because Austin Seibert and Austin Corbett, hey, they're Austins. Maybe just don't pick Austins, and you'll be fine. Um, Because those two picks did not hit, and there has been an actual 
actual ramifications for the Browns on their current roster as they're trying to win and go 12-4 and four, uh, and live up to my prediction, which I think they're going to do, and nobody's perfect. Spots 1 through 24, but it just aggravated me to say, well, he got Baker Mayfield right, so why, So shut up. Like, no, that is not the thing, right? And as I said on Twitter, you know, Terry Francona has done a really good job managing the Indians. He still, when people when he bunts, people go crazy. So we have to be able to evaluate people even when they're good. And not with the expectation um, that they should be perfect, but also not with the assumption that they are perfect. So I want us to continue to have this discussion about the Browns moves. I want us to continue to have this discussion about roster building and what they're going to do with the salary cap. And we can all have it with the understanding that Baker Mayfield, Denzel Ward, Jannard Avery, Greedy Williams, Mac Wilson, Drew Forbes, a lot of these John Dorsey picks and a lot of these John Dorsey trades are making the Browns go. But sometimes misses hurt the Browns. And that's what we're dealing with at right guard right now. Uh, I did a little video that that if you're uh, one of our football insiders and you get the Browns texts from Mary Kay Cabot, I would highly encourage you. I pump this up on our Buckeye Talk podcast a lot. If you guys listen to Takes by the Lake, but you don't listen to Buckeye Talk, this text thing that we're doing, Project Text, we promote it all the time at Cleveland.com. Like, if you care about the Browns or you care about the Indians or the Cavs or Ohio State, I would just really, really encourage you to try it. Because so many people who have tried it have stuck around and liked it. Our retention rate on keeping people is really high because people think it's worth four bucks a month. It's me sending Ohio State texts. It's Chris Fedor sending Cavs texts. It's Paul Hoyne sending Indians texts. And it's Mary Kay Cabot sending Browns texts. And they're all separate, right? They're all separate links. But it's just something that you really should try. And if you do the Browns ones, you now get an extra Browns insider as part of that. So again, check out our Project Text um, opportunities, $3.99 a month. Find it at cleveland.com. And for now, thanks for listening to Takes by the Lake. I'm just going to run these two interviews right together. Samantha Button uh, and Gage Will. And we'll come, excuse me. <laughs> it was rude. I just ate some leftover pizza. Sorry. Uh, we'll come back and say goodbye at the end. But uh, for now, please enjoy these two great interview subjects on Takes by the Lake. Back with a repeat guest here on Takes by the Lake, one of our favorites. She knows everything about Cleveland sports. It's Samantha Bunton. Samantha, thanks for joining us once again. Oh, thanks for having me, Doug. Glad to be back. Uh, to refresh, refresh the good listeners again about why you're so smart and why we want to have you on this podcast. <laughs> I'm a lifelong Cleveland sports fan, of course, and I'm also the content director for Sunday Night Football at NBC Sports. That seems like a very important job. Does it feel like an important job to you? I, you know, it depends on the day. I, uh-huh. <laughs> sometimes uh-huh. it's front work and sometimes it's uh, a little bit more stimulating than that. <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. Uh, well, Samantha, I want to talk Browns and Indians with you, but, but we'll start off with football because um, it's just something that's been on my mind and, and I, I, I love talking about roster building and I love the debates about salary cap and how you maintain a roster and how you build a roster and how you prioritize positions. But I also don't want to do that like during a season. You know, I think it's great off season stuff. But I think what is relevant right now as this team comes together is just the general amount of faith and trust that people have, not just in the talent on the roster, because I think a lot of people can see that. 
but the people in charge. So, Samantha, when you think about, A, John Dorsey, and they do have some roster holes they maybe have to try to fix here in the last couple of weeks before the season starts, and B, Freddie Kitchens as a first-time head coach, how would you describe your level of faith in those guys? Well, starting with Dorsey, um, I, I guess I would say on a personal level, I wouldn't want to know the guy. He's made some ethical decisions that I don't necessarily agree with. But I think from a, a football standpoint, in terms of the way that he has built the roster, I, I trust him a lot. It's an odd thing to say about a general manager for the Browns because it has been so very, very long since we've been able to say something like that about somebody in that position. But I like the way that he has built. Um, I paid a lot of attention. You mentioned salary cap and how we don't want to get too deep into that. So I don't want to kind of go off the rails with that. But I really appreciate sort of the discipline that he showed with that in his first year with the Browns and the way that he kind of held back and then moved more into, okay, now we are in a position to get out there and, and really compete and not sort of given to the temptation to just start throwing money at things before it made sense to do so. And I think that that takes a lot. Um, we've seen people certainly fired after one year in that position and as head coaches as well. So certainly I think that probably there was a lot of trust between he and the Haslam as well that kind of allowed him to say, okay, this is a little bit uh, more of a – I don't want to say a long-term plan because it's two years and, and we're seeing success and uh, we haven't seen much of that um, in two year spans under anyone else. But for the most part, I really do trust him on Freddie kitchens. I feel, I guess, even more enthusiastic about, um, I really like the way that he handled stepping into the role last year when nobody could have known, no one could have foreseen that that was kind of how things would shake out. I thought he handled it really well. I like his, uh, I think he allows himself to be underestimated, and I think that's really a good thing. Mm-hmm. He's obviously a very, very great football mind, but the whole, you know, aw shucks, uh, just the guy from Alabama, you know, puts on the twang, and you see it come on more strongly when it's convenient. I think that's good. I, I like a head coach who kind of allows himself to be put in that position where maybe people don't quite give you enough credit. So I, I really like what he's done. Um, I like the staff he's built. So I feel pretty good about the people in charge at the moment. And I think it's that's an important thing to talk about because, it, believe it or not, Samantha, I almost feel like, and this sounds weird, but it, it shouldn't sound weird anymore because these are not the same old Browns. Like, everybody knows that. I get tired sometimes of people bringing up the past all the time, so I shouldn't be bringing up the past now. But it's almost like you can take the talent for granted. Like, do you know what I mean? Do you feel that on some level? Like, well, they got Baker and Miles Garrett and Odell, and, like, of course their talent is going to be great. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying because it's such a weird feeling. I, you know, we've, I haven't been here since I was, I don't know, six or seven. It was the last time you took talent for granted on the Browns. I was just a little kid. And, you know, at that point, you, you don't know anything about anything. You just know, hey, my team is good. That's awesome. So it's, it's a very bizarre feeling. This is the first time certainly in my professional career in sports and even since I've been really old enough to understand it at all that we've had a Browns team where – you have things that are given. There's always been this either incredible uncertainty or sheer terror of what we knew we were dealing with. So to be able to sit back and go, well, we've got Baker. Well, we've got Miles. Well, now Odell's on the roster. It's just a completely alien feeling. I I like it, but it scares me. I'm venturing into the unknown, I think, for us. (laughs) 
the the thing that then I think comes into play and that I think is fair, and I and I talked about this earlier on the podcast, is I think it is fair to like. I think we have to do it, but w- when it feels like, man, they might have messed something up, or oh, I don't know about that move. I feel like they have risen to the point where the little things really matter. And so, for instance, like they don't have a kicker right now. <laughs> they don't know who their kicker is going to be. Nobody is emerging. Zane Gonzalez, who was around here for a couple years and got cut last year, looks like he would have been a better answer than either of the guys they have right now. Do you think it's silly to get wound up about kicker? Or do you feel like, no, that's a reasonable thing to be worried about because if your quarterback is great and your receivers are great, then maybe a kicker might be a guy who can make a difference in a game for you. Oh, yeah, I think it's, well, I certainly have caught myself multiple times over the last couple of weeks on various podcasts and just in personal conversations getting really wound up about the kicker issue, partly because it's, you know, every everything you hear is everybody always going, oh, you can just pick up a kicker off the street. You could always find a kicker. And I think we all know that that's not true, that that's not really how it works. And to kind of be just a couple of weeks out of the regular season and to not have a kicker. And certainly I think you can make the argument that, yes, it's not the most important thing and that perhaps you could find somebody who's good enough and perhaps one of these gentlemen who is currently in the running for the job will be good enough. The Browns were involved in a number of tie games and a lot of close games last season. And I expect that even though they are a greatly improved roster, they have a pretty tough schedule. They've got to play a lot of good teams, and I expect them to be, again, involved in a number of tight contests. And that's where, you know, that can you make that, you know, 47-yarder consistently in, in bad weather, it matters. It, it could be a difference maker. And because we're talking about a team that I think has a great chance to win the division but is anything but a lock to do so, then – that could be the difference between getting that last win that puts you over the top, whether that's for the division, for the wild card, what have you. It's hugely important. I mean, I love that we're down to this level of problems where we're complaining about the kickers. I've been complaining about stuff like linebacking depth a lot, and these are better problems to have than what we've had in the past. But, yeah, it's concerning to me. Well, it is one of those things. It's what happens when you find a quarterback. You then have time to complain about other things, as opposed to saying for 20 years, there's not a quarterback on this roster for people can trust. Um, where, What is your level of uh, concern or wound upness about the right guard spot? And I like I understand the Kevin Zeitler trade. I get it. Um, but the fact that they are like searching for a starting right guard late in camp has me a little wound up. Where are you on that? Yeah, I'm right there with you. Um, I the Zeitler trade, I was kind of upset about it. I it's sort of hard to argue because you like the return, and you know we all we're always told that well, you know, you can find a guard, you can find a guard, which again we all know that's not true, but trust them and, and trust what they're doing and saying, okay, this was a good move. There had to be a reason that they did this, and they must feel like ready. This all this stuff that kind of went on where they were reassuring everybody that it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And it's become pretty clear, I think, throughout camp and, and throughout the, what sort of limited amount of time we've seen these guys in preseason games so far, they're just not fine. And that they are in a bad way there. So and if we had sort of, I guess, one thing that was concerning me, and this is particularly, again, coming back to the we finally have a quarterback thing. Um, the, the last thing you want to see is something happening to Baker, which would be the most catastrophic thing that could happen to the Browns. And not necessarily saying that a weakness at right guard is going to cause Baker to be injured, but it is one of the possible, I guess, negatives that comes out of that. So 
I'm worried about it. It's, it's hard enough to find offensive line talent in the modern NFL <laughs> as it is at a time when it is, say, more prudent to be looking for offensive line talent. I don't want to see them just picking up whomever gets cut, uh, anybody yeah. who's a roster casualty here. Yeah, it's one of those, again, I mean, I, I think we all understand the idea of no team is perfect 1 through 22 and actually 1 through 24 when you include the punter and the kicker. So we get it. Um, I guess the thing I'm wondering about is if you're going to be weak at a couple spots, I think maybe right guard is one of the spots where it's like, well, you know, you, if you you got to be strong at cornerback, you got to be strong at pass rusher, you got to be strong at tackle, you got to be strong at receiver and quarterback. I get it, but it, again, it's almost like I think it's almost like a tribute to the Browns that this is where the the level of nitpicking because again, you might be nitpicking the difference of like a home home field advantage in the playoffs or not. I've been at 12 and four since December. Samantha, where are you on a record prediction right now with the Browns? I'm at 11 and five. Um, so I guess we're, we're pretty close in that regard. Um, there's a sort of a, I had marked them all out as soon as I saw the schedule and I had a handful of games that I thought, well, this could go either way or the ones where you think, well, technically I believe we can beat Baltimore twice, but it's tough not to split with the stronger teams in your division. So some of that I think is going to depend on how Pittsburgh looks, how Baltimore looks at, not super concerned about Cincinnati, but I've been in 11 and five pretty steady since the free agent period opened in this off season. So I think I'm going to stick with it. Uh, is there any part of you as a longtime Browns fan that like is pulling you back because like, Oh, I, I can't be that optimistic. I, I, that, that it can't possibly be that good. Or are you just letting it fly? I, there's definitely a part of me that feels very nervous that thinks you're tempting something here that you should be saying eight and eight and then settle for being pleasantly surprised because as Browns fans, it's, you know, we sit here waiting for what's going to go wrong and we've never, it's been a very, very long time since we've been in a position to make any kind of positive projection at all. So I kind of like to be a little bit circumspect about these things but I can feel myself kind of like drinking the Kool-Aid and believing in it more and more as closer we get to the season yeah no I'm let it fly that's okay to let it fly I mean I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm encourage anybody everybody just like let it go like based on talent based on the schedule there's so many things that would lead you to like a really good record if the past is the only thing pulling you back cut those strings and let it fly um Samantha, let's move to the Indians because I know you follow them as closely as you follow the Browns. What, what is your level of faith? And again, we, we'll talk talent on the Indians, but what is your level of faith in Terry Francona? And when you saw what the front office did at the trade deadline, dealing Trevor Bauer, and, and, and as you anticipate how that will work out, what is your level of faith in the people in charge of the Indians? Uh, I'm still a very, very big believer in Terry Francona. Um, it probably didn't look that way last week. If you, I'm sure you all saw me ranting on Twitter <laughs> here over there about the decisions to bunch and a couple of, I think, sort of, I guess, micro type of decisions that he made. But on the whole, I, I think he's an outstanding manager. I think the Indians are a better team because he is. And you see a lot of teams where they're, the manager is sort of just have to get out of the way and that team is fine. But I think Francona has pretty consistently managed them to a better record than they would have found on their own with just, you know, whomever at manager. So I, I still have a lot of faith in him that hasn't changed. And I felt that way pretty much since they hired him. Um, as far as the front office, I had some mixed feelings about the trade deadline. Um, I was sad to see Bauer go. I absolutely a big Trevor Bauer defender. I'm sorry to see that happen. 
I also had some misgivings because I don't like trading away starting pitching ever, especially when you are down to <laughs> two people uh, who were originally supposed to be part of that starting rotation at the outset of the season. And especially when you're staring down a wild card game, it's really, really important to have that ace pitcher because that's what wins a wild card game. So that made me a little bit nervous. That said, it wasn't realistic to keep Bauer in the long term. And bringing in Puig and Fernando Reyes, who was especially excited about because he is controllable and we know this team has some budget issues. So um, on the whole, I think the Indians won that trade. Whether or not it was the right move at the time, I think is probably going to be dictated by what ends up happening in the playoffs here and whether or not they realize they're missing that starting pitcher or whether getting the extra bat was the way to go. Are you fully, are do you think they're going to win the central? And I know there's a lot uh, to be made and we had Chris Fedor on the podcast last week and he was talking about how much easier the twin schedule is sort of at the, the last couple of weeks here compared to the Indians. Um, do you think they're going to win the central or do you have real concerns about that? I have huge concerns about it. I, I would have echoed the same point that the Twins have the easiest schedule going forward of any of the playoff contenders, and the Indians, unfortunately, are not even like the second or the third team down uh, on that list. So that's a, a rough way to go. Um, two and a half back now. I guess you'll be either two or three back um, by the end of this evening, which is Monday. And look, you know, I think this team is very, very capable of going on a run. Minnesota's also, I think, shown themselves to be a fallible team. But I don't like being in a position where you have to rely on somebody else to screw up to get what you want. And I think that they're a little bit in danger that we still, again, plenty of baseball left to play. If you're talking about a two or three game deficit, certainly you could overcome that. But Indians have to be doing more than not enough just to split series or even to win series anymore. You have to be the twins with their easy schedule are going to get a number of sweeps. And when you start doing the math, it starts to look more concerning. It's not to say that I don't think the Indians will make a playoffs. I think they're probably going to make the playoffs as a wild card regardless of that. But as for the division, I, you know, you talked about letting it fly earlier with the Browns and I'm like way more of a hopeless believer in the Indians. So I'm going to say, yes, I think they'll win it, but I fully expect that I might be very, very wrong about that. What, is it, what does it feel like? Uh, do you think people reached a point where they took the Indians for granted a little bit with how down the Central was and they, they'd won three straight division titles and that we have not really had a pennant race like this uh, in several years and, and everybody was always focused on, well, are the Indians going to win the World Series? You know, we're assuming the division title. Um, what, what do you think now the fact that they're in a race and that they were down by so much and fought back to get in that race – do you think that has altered anybody's view about the franchise? Do people Are people appreciating the Indians more perhaps now that they actually have to fight for it? Or are you just like a nervous wreck and wish that they were up by 10 games? <laughs> uh, yeah, I absolutely, given the choice, would rather be up by 10. But I do hope this is helping people appreciate them. This is something I was just thinking about it today, about how in you know, even in just my entire lifetime, the, the Indians have always, uh, with very few exceptions, been either like really bad and totally out of it or way out in front in the central. Almost always. There's, I can think of maybe three or four years where they were actually involved in some semblance of a pennant race before now. So when I was, I caught myself scoreboard surfing in like early July and I thought, this is weird. Why am I doing this? I'm not used to this. And I, I realized it's because for the last couple of years, we have been very comfortable. And I think coming into the season, we were all perhaps a little bit overconfident that the Indians were there. I mean, I talked to twin beat writers before the season and they said they didn't think they were there yet, but they were hoping for a wild card. They thought maybe next year they'd be able to compete. So I think we all got a little bit complacent. And then it was 
shocking and people kind of swung back the other way and they were really mad when the Indians couldn't get it together. But I'm hoping now that people will appreciate sort of the fight that this team has shown and they were down so far at one point and the sort of tenacity I think that they've shown to stay in this race and to at least get themselves into the playoff conversation, if not ultimately central, I, I hope that people will appreciate that this team is a lot more stick-to-itiveness than I think any of us realize. I have said, won't it be a wonderful world when people have reached the point of taking Brown's playoff appearances for granted? <laughs> it's like, oh, great, the Browns won their division again. When are they going to get to the to the Super Bowl? It's like, that's where the Indians are. We're taking it for granted. It's like, that is such a, again, it's like a tribute to an organization when just winning your division is somehow uh, not enough anymore. But I think it tells us about where they are. I had this stat last week that the Indians and Browns have not won a division the same year since 1954, since basically we had divisions. Um, what, what? How does that feel as a Cleveland sports fan that you are looking at a September that's going to be the Indians fighting for a playoff spot as the Browns kick off a season where everyone is assuming a playoff spot? What's that going to be like? I'm so excited about this. I, as somebody who's never really been a big Cavs person and is not a big NBA fan at all, I just wanted to see relevant baseball and relevant football being played at the same time in Cleveland. And I think we're going to get that. And that's obviously the end of the Indian season and the beginning of the Brown season. But this is, this is like the dream for me. These are the, I just wanted to see them both doing well at the same time in the same year. And if nothing else, no matter what happens, I think that is something that they're going to achieve. It really is a dream, right? I mean, there's so many people, obviously there's so many people who are Indians fans and Browns fans. And the idea that you will be enjoying both and, and have a knot in your stomach about both in the best possible way. Um, it doesn't happen that much. So I hope everybody appreciates this September as, as much as it sounds like you're going to Samantha, uh, Samantha, thank you so much for your time. Um, where can can people follow you on Twitter? What's your Twitter? Yeah, my Twitter is just uh, my name. It's at Samantha Bunsen. That's with an E-N. So you can find me over there. If you want to talk football, talk baseball, and absolutely there to chat. And then, of course, uh, watch Sunday Night Football. You'll see our work there as well. <laughs> Samantha, great to have you back on Takes by the Lake. We'll make sure to have you on again uh, when the Browns get deeper into their season. But um, for now, thanks so much and enjoy your September. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Doug. All right, you were awesome as usual. Oh, thanks so much. That was fun. I enjoyed it. So yeah, <laughs> thanks for I, having I just, me on. You, you have a good perspective on everything, so I appreciate you taking time out of your day, and we'll talk down the line. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Happy to welcome a first-time guest here on Takes by the Lake. I really enjoy following uh, his Indians thoughts on Twitter, so we reached out, and we're lucky that he had time for us. It is Gage Will from Everyone Hates Cleveland. Welcome to Takes by the Lake. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me on. Glad to join. So when the Indians bunt, what do you do? What is the physical reaction that you feel when Terry Francona bunts? Well, they've done so about 60 or 70 times this year. So I think I'd like to think that I've become more measured with each one. <laughs> uh, mostly the, just cringe. 
Yeah, but there is a physical reaction that some people feel when they see the Indians sacrificing a guy to second base with a chance to score some runs. What? What? I know that he's been asked about it by the guys who are the beat writers and are there all the time. Like, why do you think he still does it so much? You know, I ask myself this all the time, and there was actually an intriguing article about it over at uh, Let's Go Tribe, the SB Nation component saying it falls with Ty Van Berkleo, the hitting coach, because everywhere he's been, he's bunted. Really? Interesting. But, yeah, I found that interesting. I don't know how much – and Francona, whatever anybody wants to say about him, he is he will fall on the sword for anybody. So I found that particularly interesting, thinking maybe Van Berkleo is the big proponent and maybe Francona just wants to – let him be the hitting instructor and he'll take whatever questions come his way about it. I'm not really sure. I, do, do, I do can't you, figure it out. Do you think the Indians have lost games this year because they've bunted? They've sacrificed guys in situations where they maybe by the, by the numbers should have been swinging away and trying to create more runs. Do you think it's cost them actual games? I do, but the caveat is I, I don't – even though I may react a certain way to it and all of Twitter may blow up because of this bunt, I do think it's a little overstated, the effect. But there was one last week, I'm trying to remember which game, where it – according to fan graphs, so take that for with a grain of salt, it cost the Indians a 4% chance at winning the game. If they would have let so-and-so swing away, then right. their chances of winning the game would have been 4% higher. Right. So right. if you add the 30 bunts up, and not all of them are going to be 4%, they're, they're very marginal differences. So I would say that they haven't lost more than one or two games this year because of bunting, but even then I feel like that's unacceptable. That, yeah. that just bothers me to my core in a division race that very likely could come down to a one- or two-game gap. Right, right. Uh, it's interesting, and I, and I feel uh, I've sort of brought this up in some of the discussions that uh, I've been having and some other people have been having a, about John Dorsey lately, that just because you think someone might be doing a good job, it doesn't mean you can't point out areas where you think they have made a mistake or where they messed something up. So I'm, I'm curious, how do you, in, in the four years that you've been writing about the Indians, how do you take in Terry Francona as a whole? Um, what do you think he – how would you evaluate him in, in the totality of everything he does as a manager? And is there some part of it that's like, well, you know what? Like I just have to live with the bunting because that's what he's going to do, but it's just part of who he is. Oh, man, Doug. You're, you're putting me on the spot here, aren't you? <laughs> No, I, <laughs> that's why I like to just put I just have people on and then I just ask questions and sit back, baby, and put all the pressure on you. So there is a part. So what Terry Francona excels at is obviously clubhouse relations and getting a lot out of his guys and just managing the grueling day to day, 180, 175, 180 day trek, six month trek of a baseball season. And it, it is impossible to quantify that. You look at guys like Manny Acta, who 
were maybe analytically focused, but he it's clear by the end of his tenure that he had no control of what was going on in the clubhouse. He it was just lost on him. And yeah, there are things that Terry Francona does on a daily basis that drive me bonkers, like bunting and like giving time to Mike Avilas for two years. But I'm not trying to think about Michael Vilas, but it's just that Frank okay. has a very lenient, is very veteran yes. heavy, and he gives them a lot of leeway. But beyond that, there's a great aspect of that with a guy like Oscar Mercado, who had a huge day at Yankee Stadium yesterday, because Frank sat him down for a day or, or for a couple of days and put him right back in that two hole and said, We're still rolling with you go out and hit, and he responded over the weekend at Yankee Stadium. So in totality, I I don't think managers mean a whole lot to the wins and losses of a baseball team because they're just that. You go where your talent takes you. But I I think Terry Francona does a very, very good job of managing the clubhouse and getting the most out of some younger guys while being maddening. I'm trying to walk this tightrope. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, it it is hard. People love Terry Francona, right? And, and actually I, I covered Terry Francona. I was a baseball beat writer for four years at the start of my career. I covered the Philadelphia Phillies um, from, from 1998 until 2001. And so Francona's first year as a major league manager was in Philadelphia in 1997. So I caught him in year two, three, and four, and then he was fired while I was the beat writer. And Larry Boa took over for the last year that I was there. So I, I was sort of been on the ground floor. I mean, we, we I, I tell people these stories. It's hard to believe how things work now. We used to go in Terry Francona's office before a game, and the beat writers would sit there for two hours. And he would just tell baseball stories and we wouldn't even (laughs) do anything that like you could write in a notebook and turn into a story. And it was just Terry Francona's life and times as a baseball player, as a baseball manager, as someone who's been around the game his whole life. So I I have been uh, present for sort of the Terry Francona um, relationship strategy of how he deals with his players. And I thought there were times in Philadelphia where it was like really, really good. And then I thought at the end of his tenure there, when that team needed a sort of a kick in the butt, he maybe wasn't able to do it. But He's obviously grown a lot as a manager uh, with what he did in Boston, and I think he's adjusted um, to who he is. But w- with where he is now in Cleveland, I just I don't know that any fans like want to sit around and like hear people bag on Terry Francona. But I do. No. It sounds it sounds to me, Gage, like you're in a world where listen, this guy is good at the relationships, good at managing the clubhouse. I just maybe wish he would be open a little bit more to the numbers that show you this is just statistically a better way to try to win and for as good as you are at all the other stuff there are sometimes things that you do within the strategy of a game that actually hurts the indians and i wish i could come explain that to you is that sort of where you are yeah exactly and you kind of hit the nail on the head with where my frustrations lie there when you said you you pointed out that he's not conventional he's the old baseball type but he is not conventional he he wasn't afraid to go to Andrew Miller in the middle innings in 2016 and October of 2016. So it, it, I think what makes it even more maddening is this is a guy that will think out of the box or will challenge the ideas of old baseball. 
and it just right. seems like sometimes we revert back to this, okay, well, I'm bunting here because this is what we did 30 years or 20 years ago when I was right. with the Phil or when was it because of the Phillies in the late nineties. Yeah. Yeah. So 20 years ago when he was with the Phillies, but that that's fascinating. I, I mean, you have this guy that is a character and a legend in the baseball world. And I'm not trying to sit here and, call for him to be fired ever <laughs> that's not it that's right. not it at all i just feel like he is not a conventional thinker so he should be more willing to do these things like let roberto perez swing away instead of you're at yankee stadium when he's got 20 homers on the year right no I, I, tremendous opposite I, field power <laughs> and we we have to be able to do that and i and again it's almost a, and, and i i say this about everything when you're held to a high standard, it's it's almost a tribute to what you've accomplished. That like the, these little things can matter for the Indians because they're trying to win a World Series. You know, if you're if you're if you're just trying to avoid a hundred losses, who cares if you screwed up a bunt sometime in July? You know, it's like you stink, so right. it doesn't matter. But but for four years, it has mattered, and he's helped make it matter. But it has mattered. So like you said, especially now that they're in a race, and instead of you know, blowing everybody in the way in the central, they're going to be in a race for the last six weeks of the season. And you don't know if it might come down to one game. And that's why I, I know we were, people were having this discussion on Twitter the other day when in Yankee stadium, he did not pinch hit for Puecki late in that game. And he hits into the double play when you had the, the tying run at third. And part of the explanation is, well, I wanted to give Roberto Perez a full day off. I had a lot of trouble with that because it's like I get that. That's like a classical, classic Tito thing. I'm protecting my guy. Perez has played, he's he's played as much as the top five catchers of the American League. He's never been a full time catcher like this before. Of course, he's banged up and wearing down. But man, you got to win the day. And I felt like you had to win the day. And maybe if not pinch hit with Perez, at least be prepared to put him in the game at catcher if you pinch hit with somebody else. Because that a loss there to the Yankees might be the difference between being the wild card and winning the division or being the wild card and not making the playoffs at all. What did you think of that move? Oh, I was I was pretty upset about that one. Not because – and I don't want to beg on Kevin Ploiecki. He's a backup catcher, and he plays once or twice a week. And we, as we saw with Roberto Perez the last couple of years, it's really, really difficult to get into a rhythm hitting, to get your timing down. And he just was put in a situation that he shouldn't have been in. And the other factor, the other part of that is Terry Francona loves his huge, his long bullpens, which, which is fine, but that costs you a bench player. So when your options were Roberto Perez, who you didn't want to hit in that situation, and then two lefties, Mike Freeman and Tyler Naquin against a tough lefty, I think it was Zach Britton. Right. It, it, you kind of shot yourself in the foot by not and having not having Jordan Luplo hurts there, but you just kind of shoot yourself in the foot by not having that extra bench guy as an option to pinch hit if you wanted to. But it, there was no way in that situation that Kevin Ploiecki should have been in the batter's box. It was sort of and shocking when you started going through and saying like, well, who could they hit here? And it was like, my gosh, they have like no options here because their benches showed short. Yeah, you're right. 
I, I didn't even think about it as much. I mean, I know a lot of people did. I'm sure you did, right, when Kevin Pelagi walk up, walked up to the plate. And it, hindsight's 20-20, but I started really thinking about that about a half inning later. Like, wow, you really missed your chance there. You really, you really just wasted an opportunity by letting Kevin Pulaski hit. Because Chapman's coming in the ninth, and you're not getting anything off Chapman. So it was like that was your last shot to try to score. And I know someone had pointed out to me on Twitter, well, what if you tie the game there, and then Perez ends up playing six innings, you know, because you go 15 innings or whatever. It's always one of those things that's not ideal. But if Kevin Ploiecki tripped on the dugout step on his way to the plate and sprained his ankle, Roberto Perez would have had to come in. Like you, so, even if so you're getting a day off, you're, it's, you're the emergency catcher. And I sort of felt like in that situation with where the race is, like that was an emergency. Yeah, and here's the other thing: you can give Roberto Perez a full day off a couple of days later because there's a good chance there's not going to be another plate appearance like that that that's that important in the next game either. So, yeah. so maybe you have to burn his off day there, but then you can make up for it on the back end. Yeah, it, it was so, a hard time to live for tomorrow and to put like the well-being of the of the player that you love and that you're there to protect. And again, you respect that with Francona, but that was a hard situation to sort of put that above the chance to win an important game uh, in the middle of August. That was hard to stop. And here's the, here's yeah, and here's another part of that that don't you think Roberto Perez is sitting there on the top of that dugout itching to hit? Right. I, I, that happens so much. I like mean, people, people protect p- others from things they don't want to be protected from. So Terry Francona is saying like, "Oh, I don't want to do that to Roberto Hernand- uh, Roberto Perez." And Roberto Perez is like, "Give me a bat, man. Let me go try and hit one opposite opposite field over the short porch and right. Let me get up there. Come on." That's yeah, what he's yeah. thinking. And I mean, no, everything. And I don't know Roberto Perez from the pizza delivery guy that came to my house a little bit ago. But everything that you see in interviews from him, he just seems like a gamer who would have loved to be up in that position. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I don't want to get bogged down too much in this because you have you have no. gauge of so many good opinions on so many different things. Just where the Indians are right now. Right. That here we are uh, heading toward late August. They are in a race with the twins. They have rallied from 11 and a half back to create this race. Do you feel like given everything that's happened, Jose Ramirez slump, uh, the Carlos Carrasco situation, Kluber's injury, and obviously that news got worse tonight with the news that he's going to be out another two weeks, at least with the abdominal strain. I thought when I saw him in Akron you know, last week, he was raring to go, and I was fully expecting him to be back, and now that's not going to happen right now. Um, with all the things that have happened, are the Indians where they should be? Are you should they even should they be behind by more? Is it partly a miracle that they're as close to the Twins as they are as they are, or with this talent, with Francisco Lindor and Mike Clevenger and Shane Bieber having a borderline Cy Young candidate year, should they be ahead of the Twins right now? Where do you think of where they stand given everything that's happened? I mean, I, I think at the end of the day they're right about where they should be. Uh, I think, and I think this is where they thought they would be at the beginning of this year when they didn't. Part of the reason they're not, they went, didn't go crazy. Obviously, there were payroll cutbacks, but I think they anticipated winning about this many games. I don't think anybody thought the Twins were going to rip the cover off the ball in the way that they have. I mean, people right. knew the Twins would challenge right. them, but to be two and a half games back when you're 20 something games over 500, nobody saw that coming. Right. But 
given the injuries and what happened in April and May, it, it's kind of a miracle they're here, but they caught so many bad breaks in April and May that it, it kind of feels like everything's just balanced out. <laughs> like the I, ebbs and flows of baseball. Yeah, the season-long soap opera that uh, that it's you know you sometimes you have to stick with it because um, that's the way this game is a lot of times. Although being at eleven and a half back or whatever they were, I know I wrote on June first that in the, since they went to this division structure, only one team has been double digits out on June first <laughs> and won the division. But and the Indians right. would be the second because they were ten and a half out on June first, and here they are right in it. But it just was set up for that. That again. The second place team, the team that was out was the better team. The Twins had a lot of things go right with some of their offseason acquisitions, with some of their homegrown guys sort of growing into career years. You kind of thought not maybe not everybody in Minnesota was going to keep that up. And again, not everything in Cleveland was going to keep going wrong. Um, I want to specifically ask you about the pitching staff because I know you've had some interesting thoughts and stories about that. When Kluber looked on track to me, I was very comfortable trading Trevor Bauer because I don't think you have to – Shane Bieber as a fifth starter is nuts. You know, like I thought their roster was off balance at the start of the year, and it's like you're pitching – well, you have payroll limitations. Your pitching can't be this good. This is – your pitching is literally too good. Where they are now with Bieber and Clevenger and some of the other young, interesting arms and Kluber, if he's back at some point in September maybe – what do you think of their starting pitching staff? Were you completely okay with the Trevor Bauer trade? Did that make you a little bit nervous? And just sort of through the rest of this season and their ability to, co- to compete in this pennant race with these pitchers, and then the future of this starting pitching staff, where are you? So to start here, I was very adamantly against trading Trevor Bauer, but that was on the because I didn't think there was any way that they were going to get a package like they did. And I don't think the rest of the pitching staff mattered a whole lot when they were able to get that return. I think they, they saw Framiel Reyes for the next, and as bad as he swung it in Cleveland, I'm not concerned. They, they saw a guy who's a, in his early twenties and hitting under control for five and a half years, who's going to hit you 40 home runs a year for the next five and a half years. And right. Beyond that, they got the rental Fleeg and the guy who started for the Clippers tonight, Logan Allen, who is a vaunted prospect in his own right because he's just got he's got good stuff and he's another little project for them. So trading Trevor and then they got a couple more prospects beyond that that are lesser known. But trading Trevor Bauer was about threading the needle, and they were able to thread that needle with this trade. So I, I don't really think Bieber's leap or Clevenger being Clevenger had a whole lot to do with it, or at least it shouldn't. It, it was more about, we got this value for a year and a half of, albeit not too pricey, but a little pricey Trevor Bauer, because he's due 20, he's going to be due 18 to 20 million next year in arbitration. So. Right. He's not a bargain, right? He's not, he's probably, you know, he's really valuable. He's an innings eater. Um, I get all that. But, yeah, he's not at a bargain stage anymore. You've got to pay for it for sure. Right. So that worked twofold with the Indians being a little more worried about spending $18 million on Trevor Bauer than another club, plus getting that value they got back for him. I, I really didn't see that coming. That was uh, 
that was a steal. I, <laughs> and then with the other pitchers, your Bieber jump has been fantastic, and Clevenger has settled in under Bowers' tutelage a little bit, and he just took off. But those other guys like Zach Plesic and Aaron Savali, they those jumps are incredible, and they speak testaments to how the Indians have developed starting pitchers. They found this same – if you notice, Savali, Plesic, Bieber, they're all of the same mold. They're yeah. college arms, huge athletes with high IQ and command. That is the frame for the Indians pitching. That That's how they've focused their attack on pitching, and it, it's worked. I mean, Plessick's been impressive, though he's been a little fortunate, I think, but he's got a huge ceiling. Savali has been incredible. And Bieber, there are no there are no superlatives that do him justice. So they found this high IQ athlete with command that was a college arm and all in the same draft in 2016. So it's kind of miraculous because the Indians being a small market club, as much as people hate to hear that, they have to find ways, they have to find market inefficiencies. And it seems like they stumbled into one here. I I obviously the focus continues to be well. I'll ask you a two part question here to finish up. I, I want to yeah. deal with now, but that I always like to deal with the future as well because everybody loves the future. Everybody, it's like that's why we talk about free agency during the World Series. It's why we talk about the NFL draft during the Super Bowl. It's why we talk about recruiting during the college football playoff. Everybody loves the future, but let's deal with right now. Do you think they're going to win the Central? <laughs> I I would say. And I know Fangraph's odds would disagree heavily based on the Twins having an easier schedule and being two and a half games up. But I still think it's a coin flip. I I think those six games against Minnesota are could go either way, and they could ultimately decide it. And those are six games in a span of nine days, I think, at the beginning of September. Yeah. So I – do think it will be something that comes down to the last week of the season, but I, I can't even make any proclamation about that right now. It, I, I think it's a coin flip. All right, and so then that's uh, we we love. I, that was a tra- isn't it stressful? I feel like I'm stressing you out, making you talk <laughs> about the Indians because they're so complex. They're like no, they're, there's just a lot with a lot to unpack with that with that. The Twins having a two and a half game lead and an easier schedule, but I think the Indians are a better team, even w- even without with the Kluber unknown. I still kind of like the Indians projected moving forward, so I just think it's really close. And, and the thing, and I've I, I'm not the only one who says this. I mean, everybody kind of ends up analyzing the Indians the same way because they're so familiar to everybody by by now, and so much of what they've done over this streak has been they've had these key core guys, and even some of the guys who aren't that good have been around for a long time. But it just still feels like if when we've seen Ramirez and Lindor go nuts together, we've never seen them go nuts together in the playoffs, but we've seen those months where they both have like an OPS over a thousand. You know, it's like if they do that in September, which they could, they certainly could. Then I, then it's like, well, of course I think the Indians are going to win because I think Ramirez and Lindor could each win like 
a game and a half a week by themselves. Um, but if yeah. they're just if they're just OK and now you're waiting for, you know, Greg Allen and Jason Kipnis and and Tyler Naquin and other guys to get big hits and it's like the pitching's good, but you're trying to win three, two every night, then that's going to be much more difficult. But it is it is sometimes hard to truly analyze the Indians in a short burst because it's like, well, are we getting simultaneous MVP quality Lindor and Ramirez? Are we getting one of them at that level or are we getting neither of them at that level? And I think the one thing, you know, is like when you think about the, the Astros or the Yankees or once, you know, if they do get into the postseason, it's like, man, I don't know. Just let me see Ho- Jose Ramirez go nuts in October for, for three weeks and let's see what happens. But I don't know. Is that, is that a simplistic evaluation of them or are they just that kind of team where they rely so much? They have two, two such elite hitters at their ceiling, but they're not always at their ceiling because nobody is unless you're Mike Trout. No, and well, that's the other part of the Bauer trade. There is those two. You need they're so dependent on those two. But again, with Framiel Reyes, I want to emphasize he could go nuts and hit eight home runs in a week and a half for you and win you two ball games by himself. And Puig, everybody's talking about him because his cannon in right field and he's hit like crazy since coming to the Indians. It feels like they they just lengthen the lineup and. I don't know what would happen in a playoff series against the Astros. It is nothing if they were to put themselves in that situation, as we saw last year, facing Zach Grinke, Garrett Cole, and Justin Verlander. You could go home pretty quick. But if J-Ram is on or Jose Ramirez is on or Francisco Lindor is on, all it takes is them running into a couple of these elite pitchers even, and all of a sudden you got a series. Right. So right. I agree that those two plus Reyes and Puig and even Oscar Mercado getting going and Carlos Santana, who we have, who I feel terrible oh, right. about not even mentioning, Absolutely. is having Absolutely. a career a year and he's been yep. insanely consistent all year. Yep. yep. So he, he's been the backbone of the Indians offense because he's just gotten on base all year at a clip higher than he ever has in his career. And he's what, 33 years old. Yeah. It, it, that lineup, the Indians lineup, I was doing some research, and in April and May, they were one of the three worst offenses in baseball. Now they're at 15, 16, right in the middle of the pack. That speaks to just how good they've been for two and a half months. They've yeah. leapfrogged 12 or 13 other teams after having two months of data out there. So this lineup is not a joke at this point. They that was with absent Jose Ramirez and Lindor missing three weeks, and they didn't have Reyes and Puig yet. This this lineup can compete in the playoffs. Just getting there, and if it is vir- by virtue of the wild card, hopefully setting Shane Bieber up to shut shut the Rays down or whatever situation right. arises. I, I mean that, and that I, is the thing that, that I think as we look ahead. Um, and I, and I want to talk about again, this window, the Lindor window that, it, that everybody always talks about. And I think rightfully so you, you just, everybody saw it. Everybody saw it in spring training. And when you live in a world where you sent out for the first month of the season, you were sending out Hanley Ramirez, Carlos Gonzalez, and Jake Bowers as three of the guys you're going to rely on in the lineup. And that's, that's more that's, often Eric Stamets. <laughs> I mean, and right. And then you throw in the Lindor injury on top of it. And the fact that Jose Ramirez was cold for two or a half months or whatever it was like that at the very least, 
it won't be like that next year. And I don't know if they're going to be able to keep Puig or not, but to put Reyes in that lineup, the way that Mercado has developed, he's going to be better than Carlos Gonzalez. Like, what what is your belief? I just want you to look ahead a little bit. When we talk about next year, and let's just, I think we can assume that Kluber is going to be a reliable starting pitcher. Is he Cy Young quality anymore? Maybe not. But again, I, I don't feel like this is any kind of injury that's going to be a, something that's going to really knock him off course long term. So you add Kluber back in there with Clevenger and Bieber. You're not, who knows what's going to happen with Carlos uh, Carrasco. Everybody wishes him the best, but we don't know at this point. But you have a couple hey, of other He was other hitting young 96 arm. and 97 in his rehab uh, appearance today. Right? I mean, pretty <laughs> nuts. Like, it, it, it's, you know, the human heart and the, the medical science of today is, a, is a, a devastating combination sometimes of what they can do in the face of, uh, of terrible things. And uh, yeah. I, would not, I would not bet against Carlos Carrasco, but – um, no. you know, it's, it's a human story more than it is a baseball story, but man, wouldn't it be awesome to get him back the, in the rotation the way he's been there for the last decade. But, but yeah, I, I didn't mean yeah. to knock you off your post. Go back. No, go ahead. But, I'm sorry. But, but, but it's almost like, but like whether, you know, it's like if you have Kluber, Bieber, Clevenger, and then maybe Carrasco, and then a couple of the other guys you mentioned previously for the fourth and fifth spots. And then you think about the lineup what what would you like them to come back with? I think I'm going to feel better about them at the start of next season than I did this year when it was like, well, the starting pitching is so awesome, but the lineup is almost just as bad in comparison. I just feel like the Bauer move is going to balance out the roster. Um, they They clearly have some things to figure out in the outfield, but if you told me that Reyes is going to be the everyday DH and Mercado is going to be the everyday center fielder. And now you've got to figure out exactly what you're going to do with the corner spots. I feel like that's certainly progress over Carlos Gonzalez and Hanley Ramirez. As you and, think about next year, how do you feel and where do you think they really maybe need to do something the off, this offseason or beyond this year? Can they come back next year with this roster that they now have built mid-year? And maybe be in a situation where they can get off to a hotter start and once again to be ready to compete for a World Series in 2020. So the thing about looking into next year is beyond who knows what happens with Puig. For some, it just doesn't seem very likely in my head knowing the Indians that he ends up an Indian again. I would love to see it. But they have a guy in Columbus who's hit well this year that they got Leon Gomes deal and Daniel Johnson, who they're going to give every opportunity to win that job, I would think, out of spring training next year. And then you have guys like Greg Allen, who have spent the last two months trying to convince people that he is not a foregone option, that he he is a legitimate outfielder. I, I feel like for everything bad that's happened to the Indians over the past seven, eight months, the outfield has gone the other way. It went from bleak to... Well, now we have a few options in Greg Allen, Oscar Mercado, and Daniel Johnson in Columbus. And then past the outfield, they'll have they'll be looking at there's a guy in Akron right now, one of their top prospects, Nolan Jones, who could could be looking like a second half of 2020 play in the infield. So right. the real way that they can bridge the gap this off season. They need to go out and find somebody who can serve, fill in at second base. Yeah. And I think they kind of did that under the radar 
or somebody that they think has a chance to under the radar in that raise deal a, a little bit before the deadline. They got a guy that was a former top prospect named Christian Arroyo, and he's going to have a chance to win that second base job. There, remember the Mercado deal last year? The closest parallel to them trying that again this deadline was Christian Arroyo. Right. Good point. He would. I I think the deal was more about him than Hunter Wood, who's admirably filled in in the back end of that bullpen. I think they saw a top prospect that had been mired by he's hurt right now and not playing, but they saw a prospect like Arroyo who <clears throat> maybe they still loved his ceiling and thought, well, here's a good buy low shot that we can take, just like with Mercado last year or and. As you illuminated in your piece detailing all the a few weeks ago detailing all the Indians trades over the last ten years, these guys hit yep. at an alarming rate on trades and it, it's not even just the big ones it it is the ones like Mercado and like getting Mike Clevenger for Vinny Pastano right yeah so yeah they they do a good job of balancing that and Filling needs, maybe not in real time, but a year down the road. So uh, next year they'll be looking at some reinforcements in the minors, and maybe they'll be in play for a free agent second baseman or something along, or Puig or something along those lines. But it, it, it does feel like, again, in terms of like maximizing the Lindor window, I, I do feel like for as crazy as the start of this season was with the way some of the things developed, again, the trade that you talked about is almost like the trade they couldn't refuse. It was so good for them. It just feels like the result is not only sort of repositioning the franchise to make the run this year that they need to make, um, but just sort of resetting some things so that they aren't going to face the same kind of holes next February and March that they face this February and March. And I think, you know, um, Obviously, it's all about trying to win every year because they're in that winning window. But that to me is almost as important as anything that I, I just feel like, you know, it felt, you know, once they lost Brantley last offseason uh, and didn't really do much of anything. And, and you know, if the, if the Jake Bowers trade didn't turn out to be a, a, an immediate uh, home run for them, um, it was like, well, you know, you're trying to hope that Jordan Luplo works out or you're trying to hope that. You catch lightning in a bottle with Carlos Gonzalez. I just feel like they'll be better set up a year from now, which which is a very encouraging thing um, with where this franchise is. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jake Bowers is another name that he had a bad year this year, but there's I'm still not fully out on him. So he'll get another look next year, and maybe he can make the most of it. But last year he was with the Rays, and he was basically a league average hitter at age 22, 23. That that's not nothing. <laughs> no, I think it's so true. There, and it's, it's the difference of you trade for Jake Bowers and you sort of wind up thinking like, well, we're kind of gonna rely on him at age twenty three to like go out there and be an important part of the lineup. And then it was like, oh, that didn't work. But I think you filled in enough around him now, maybe um, that you have other options. So yeah, don't give up on him. But also, they won't be in his position to rely on him as much as they were this season. Right, and then it wouldn't surprise me if it was another scenario where if they were fully healthy, he started next year in Columbus, and if he was raking, they would give him the call. But 
he's definitely going to be an option throughout spring training, and I think he'll he might end up on the MLB roster right out of the gate. But they'll, I do agree wholly with your point that they kind of just lengthen that window with this Bauer trade. They did the most that they could to add a fixture to the middle of their lineup, and they're they kind of leveraged a little bit of their strength this year to improve next year and for four more years after that. Gage, tell the people uh, where they can follow you and where they can uh, find your writing. I, you can find, you can find me on Twitter at Gage EHC. That's G A G E E H C. And uh, you can find Myself and Jim Pete, who has been blogging about the Indians for a long time at IBI and waiting for next year. And same with Mike Hattery. It's us. It's a trio of us over at everyonehatescleveland.com. And I'm, I don't want to toot our own horn too much, but we do provide some good analytical looks at different players. Like my buddy Mike Hattery had a great piece on Aaron Savali and his velocity improvements that just pubbed tonight. So head on over there and check us out. Gage, thank you so much for taking uh, time out of your night. Uh, I, I love these kind of conversations. I, 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 I love talking to, to people like you who sort of understand uh, the game uh, and analyze it in a way that a lot of us don't. So um, thanks so much for this. And we will make sure that we have you back on takes by the lake down the road. Oh yeah. Thanks a lot, Doug. I'd love to come back whenever you'll have me. <laughs> And we hope you guys will come back too. So thanks to Samantha. Thanks to Gage. Uh, thanks to you guys for listening. Again, drop the reviews for Takes by the Lake on iTunes. Uh, check out my Buckeye Talk podcast. We have Nathan Baird, our new Ohio State beat writer, who's going to be joining that on a regular basis. Uh, make sure you th- at least think about Project Text. I'm pretty sure right now it's a 14-day free trial. So you sign up. You give your phone number. They sh- the the texts show up in your phone like text, one or two a day with tidbits about whatever team you want. Indians, Browns, Cavs, Ohio State. Um, and if you don't like it after 14 days, you cancel and it never costs you a nickel. So, you know, football's starting. You'll, you'll at least get two weeks of, like, good info, good, timely, quick info and insight. And uh, and if you like it enough, maybe you'll spend 4 bucks a month to keep it. So I'm Doug Maurice. That was Takes by the Lake. And we'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.